We're so glad that you are here this morning as we continue in this series that we've entitled Focal Point. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, If you need a Bible, there should be some under the chairs there in the racks below. Luke 19 is where we're going to be. There are some paper notes that you'll find in your bulletins as well as you can look digitally online at the Riverside app. And if you haven't known that we have an app, Riverside has an app. You can go into your devices and search for that and download that. You can see all the podcasts from previous weeks as well as uh, the events that are coming up and the live event notes are in there uh, as well. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Luke is in the New Testament. It's uh, one of the four gospels, one of the four stories of the life of Jesus. And this year, we have been focusing our attention and fixing our eyes on Jesus with an incredible intentionality. And each month, we've been picking different pieces of the story of, of Christ's life. And this week, we're focusing on that time leading right up to the cross. Last week, Pastor Donnie uh, kicked off this series, and we talked about the fact that we are to find our focal point, and we are to find our focal point by focusing on spiritual things and upon Jesus. And Jesus, it says in the text that we studied last week, resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, and he was focused, and he had come for a singular purpose in dying on the cross. And this week, we pick up the story as I said in Luke 19, as we look at the triumphal entry and Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And for those of you who maybe are newer in that word triumphal entry, what does all that mean? Simply means that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and we're going to see how he did that. And this week, we're intentionally keeping our focus. That's where we're headed today, is if we found our focus and what we talked about last week, how do you actually keep your focus on Jesus? Now, Let me just get a quick show of hands here in the room. And those of you listening by podcast, we're glad to have you here today as well. Let me see by show of hands, who in this room struggles with keeping focus, just in general in life? How many of you struggle to keep focus? Keep your hands up. Just kind of look around and just feel the pressure that I feel as a communicator, knowing that you all struggle with keeping focus, right? You feel my pain. Public speaking is a challenge in and of itself, but knowing that the focus is a challenge is all the more challenging for me. So I'm going to do my best today to keep you focused, and I want to walk through this story. And for many of us, we've heard this story every year when it comes around to this time, but I want to hope to help you to see this through the lens of what could we learn about Jesus, his character, and his nature that would help us to not just find our focal point on him, but actually keep it throughout the course of our lives. And what we're going to study today is a very uh, cool time in the nation of Israel's calendar. They were all coming, the Jews would all come to Jerusalem at this time of year to celebrate the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And there would be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this. This time of year was the time of year when they would remember their freedom and the, uh, getting out of slavery and bondage, 430 years that Egypt, uh, that Egypt had been in control of the nation of Israel. And they had come out of that. And what they had come to Jerusalem to do was to celebrate that exodus, that getting out of slavery and bondage. And they were commemorating that as they would join together around their Passover meals and Passover seders. And they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread during that time and and ultimately the Passover. And so you have the Jews 
by the hundreds of thousands. You have the Jewish leaders that were there, and you have the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was in control of Judea and that surrounding area at this time. And it's a powder keg in Jerusalem because the Jews can't stand the Romans, and the Romans have no love for the Jews as well. They are controlling them, and they are ruling over them. And so into the midst of this, you have Jesus, who's been on the outskirts of Jerusalem. On Friday night, he comes into an area that we know as Bethany, and Bethpage is in that general vicinity as well. And it's just outside of Jerusalem. He's been there with his friends Friday night and Saturday, and now it's time for him to roll into Jerusalem. And that's where the story picks up. I want you to just get a quick look at the land. It's always great to know where we're at in terms of the Bible stories. So here you see Jerusalem, and then over here you have Bethany, and that's where the entrance into Jerusalem is going to come, where Jesus is going to be coming from. And it's actually the, uh, the road that goes from Jericho to Jerusalem is actually a 17-mile road, and it ascends over 3,000 feet up to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on a high hill, and everybody would come up to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus comes in, he's coming in there from Bethany, and that's where we pick up this story as all of this comes to a head in some incredible ways. So let's look at it beginning in verse 29 of Luke chapter 19. It says, as Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Now, as I was reading that this week, I was putting myself in their shoes. And imagine being those two disciples. We don't know which two it was. But imagine being the ones who get this, you know, call to do this. And they've got to go, and they've got to go find a colt. They've got to go find this donkey. They don't know where it is they're looking for. They're not for sure how this is going to work out. But they're trying to find this animal. And they don't, you know, they're, they're thinking about the awkward conversation. Just put yourself in the story and imagine this awkward moment where you're going to, and you're going to take something that doesn't belong to you and that awkward conversation of, you know, hey, what are you doing with my piece of property here? And in the midst of this, uh, you know, maybe they're going to get accused. Maybe that's, you know, it's theft. Hey, you know, what are you stealing my animal for? And the, imagine the awkwardness of that. And I imagine them looking and, and walking away and they're saying, you know what? Why couldn't he have sent Thomas? I mean, he's always in trouble. He's always doubting, or why, why couldn't he have sent this other guy, one of the other disciples? But these two guys go. We don't know who they are. But imagine that you're parked here right now. Your, your, your cars are out there, right? And have you ever had this happen to you before? Where you go out to the parking lot, you're parked wherever, Walmart, Sam's, here at the mall, and you go out and you go to your car, and you go to open your door, and you pull on it, and you've already unlocked it from a distance, and it's not opening? And you realize that you're standing at the wrong car. That awkward moment when it gets even worse, which happened to me years ago, when I opened the door to someone else's car that looked just like mine, and the woman in the front seat screams at me. You want to talk about awkward? I was, after the service was over, our last service, I had a couple came through, and they said that their son had actually gone. He was texting and wasn't paying attention. He opened the door, sat down, and kept texting, and realized that there were two people that were not his parents sitting in the front seats. <laughs> There's a whole new level of awkwardness. So here they find themselves in this moment. They're going in, and notice what it says. 
Those who were sent ahead went and found it. And I loved this phrase. It jumped out at me with fresh clarity as I think about keeping my focus on Jesus. And they found it just as he had told them. And the thought that I came up with that, that, that helps me, that has helped me over the course of my life, is that Jesus always sees farther and he knows more than we do. He's like your mama. Your mama always knew when you were lying, and she had eyes in the back of her head, didn't she? She does still. Moms, you know what I'm talking about. You just have that sixth sense, and and Jesus is saying, you know what? I always see further, and I always know more. And I imagine those disciples coming back, bringing the colt to Jesus, Jesus looking at them with a wink and a smile, saying, guys, come on. Do you not know me by now? Uh, It was just as I said it would be. And when we are in the midst of life and in the midst of circumstances that we feel like are in over our head and we're out of control, we can take refuge and we can take hope in knowing that Jesus always sees farther and he always knows more than we do. And once we have found our focal point on him, we can continue to focus on him because we know that he is sovereign. He is in total control of everything that this life would throw at us. And that can help us to keep a fresh perspective and see the circumstances of this life in the ways that we should from his perspective when we know that he's in control, that he always sees further, and that he always knows more than we do. So what in your life this morning, as you're sitting there today, or maybe you're listening by podcast, what are you facing in this season of life that you wish you knew what the outcome was going to be? Did you know that Jesus actually knows who our next president is going to be? He's not going to be, he's already, he's, he's already got it under control. But what are you facing financially? You wish you knew what the outcome was going to be. What are you facing physically, relationally? professionally. Maybe you're in that season right now, students, where you're thinking about where you're going to go to school next year, and you're educationally got a lot of questions, and you tend to lose focus when you got a whole bunch of options, or you really don't have anywhere to go. Can I encourage you today to find in this story that Jesus sees further, and he knows more than you do, and you can trust him. And when you get a hold of that, and you really get that deep in your spirit, it impacts how you follow him, and it impacts your focus. Continuing the story, it says, As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? Here's the awkward conversation. You got in my car and you don't deserve, you're not in this car. They replied, The Lord needs it. And I love, as I was studying this, I love the play on words that Luke uses here. The thought is that Jesus always owns it all. And what Luke does in that verse is he talks about this idea that the owner is a little O, the owner of this donkey uh, owns it, but the big owner, the supernatural owner, the supernatural master is who really owns it. And in this thought, I find that every week, every month, every two weeks for some of us, every week for some, maybe once a month for some of us, we have an opportunity every time we get paid to intentionally refocus on Jesus. Every paycheck that you receive is an opportunity for you to refocus on the fact that he owns it all. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's honestly what we believe. We believe that he owns it all, and every time we have an opportunity to give, to return to him what he's given to us, it refocuses us on the fact that he is the supernatural owner of our homes, of our clothes, of our cars, of our bank accounts, our retirement funds, 
our technology. He even owns our bodies. And his invitation to us is to steward that stuff well, is to manage his stuff, his cult, if you will, well. And when you and I get a hold of this, when we begin to see that everything that we have comes from his hand, it changes our perspective. It moves us from a temporal concern and fear and doubt and worry about the stuff that we have or the stuff that we don't have to the eternal perspective that says, you know what? This is his anyway. You know, Jesus, your car just broke down. (laughs) What are you going to do with that, Jesus? Jesus, the stock market just crashed. What are we going to do about that? And again, because he sees further and he knows more, he's not up there going, well, I didn't see that coming. He gets it. He understands it. And he invites us to focus on him and to follow him in the midst of it. So what do you have as you're sitting there today? What do you have that he might have need of? That he wants to invite you to put your trust and your faith in him to the point where you say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. You're the supernatural owner of it all, and you've invited me to manage it well. It changes how you view life, and it decreases your worry and helps you to focus because stuff like worry and stuff like pursuing more and more stuff derails us from focusing on Jesus. Good story continues in verse 35. They brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, the cool thing here is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about this. They all, these four writers of the story of Jesus, give us different angles and different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the fact that uh, they threw their cloaks down, and Matthew and Mark talk about the, the branches being down. But the reason why we celebrate Palm Sunday, the reason why we call it Palm Sunday, is because of John's record. John records specifically that they put palm branches down. They would have looked similar, and there would have been a lot more of them on a branch. But the reason why, as you leave today, we're giving you one of these is simply to commemorate that. And the thought that I want you to see in these verses is simply this, that helps me to focus on Jesus. It's that Jesus always does the unexpected. Jesus always does the unexpected. Now, what was unexpected about the way that he entered into Jerusalem? Well, it had a lot to do with what he rode and how he came in. And in that day, the Romans were big into military processions. They would come in, the generals would come in after having conquered people groups, and by the thousands they would celebrate the generals that came in. The generals would ride chariots or horses, and there would be all of this worship of these generals and celebrating the generals. Or if the emperor Caesar came in, they would declare that he was God and that he was a son of God, and that's how they would celebrate that in that time. And so the people of Israel were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for their king. And they would have hoped that Jesus would have come in like a Roman military general. But instead, Jesus comes in and he does the exact opposite of what they had expected and what they had hoped. And he comes in riding meek and lowly on a donkey, on a colt. And so, as you think about your own life and as you take one of these today, I want to encourage you that Jesus always does the unexpected in our world today. He still in the business of doing the unexpected, the supernatural. He's always doing the top upside down kind of thing. Now, remember what I said. The challenge this morning is to keep you focused, right? 
And if Jesus always does the unexpected, why would we not do something unexpected in these moments together, all right? So, who likes the unexpected? Anybody? Got a few of you? All right, well, somebody over here in this section, you want to, who wants unexpected? All right, Brian, here you go. Oh, I didn't throw very good. All right, now, now who wants something unexpected here? Who we got? Come on. All right, heads up. Oh, come on now. All right, we got something more here. This is a Reese's peanut butter cup egg. So, yeah, okay. There we go. All right, now I got a Cadbury over here. There you go. Somebody catch it. All right. See, it pays attention. It pays to pay attention in church, right? So, Jesus is always doing stuff that's unexpected. In fact, the writer Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, makes some very cool statements about God in general and how he does things that are always unexpected. Look at it in your notes. It says here, Isaiah writes in chapter 64, when you came down long ago, you did, look at this, awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Jesus still wants to do the unexpected in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in this world. And what if we not only anticipated that Jesus would do something unexpected, but what if we actually expected and asked him to do supernatural, unexpected things? in our lives and in our families, in our schools, in our churches, in our communities, and around this globe? What if we actually asked and expected and believed and lived out on the front lines enough that we would move past the ordinary rituals and religion and the mundane following of God and connecting to God, and we were actually living a real, vital, passionate relationship where the unexpected occurred daily in our lives. That will focus you. When you live out on the edge spiritually, that will focus you on Jesus because he's still doing the supernatural and the unexpected. I think that we would live more by faith and less by sight. I think that we would focus on Jesus and we would listen to the whispers of his Holy Spirit. I think we would pray riskier prayers and we would pray bolder prayers if we truly believe this. I think that we would share more fervently this transformation that's occurred within us. I think we'd serve more passionately and more focused if we truly believed that Jesus was doing this in our generation and in our lives. So look for Jesus to do the unexpected, and you'll be more focused on what he's doing. It continues on in verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest to read through those verses, I'm reminded that Jesus is always worthy of worship. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, you're kind of investigating or exploring, what does that mean? That means when life is good, he's worthy of following. That means when life is difficult and tragic strikes, he's still worthy of following. And in this moment, the imagery is so cool to see what God is doing here through this story. Jesus arrives 
the same way that the Old Testament kings Solomon and Jehu arrived there into Jerusalem. He comes in the same road and the same thing happens. These people knew their Bibles. They knew their Old Testament. They're seeing this thing happen. And when they lay the cloaks down and they lay the branches down, it is a way of saying he's royalty. And we believe that he is the king. And in the midst of this very moment, there's a tremendous amount of tension going on because the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the ones that we talk about a lot around here and how messed up they had gotten by this time, they're not happy that Jesus is coming in like this because they don't view him as their Messiah. But here this crowd of people is cheering on Jesus, is celebrating and worshiping him. And look what it says their response was in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But then Jesus is going to reply, and he's going to quote the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, and he says this, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And it begs the question, how do we live lives of worship? We come here together on a Sunday morning, and we're prepared to help you to sing songs, and it's so awesome to be together, to be able to do that, to once a week revere God together corporately and celebrate, but it's so much more than that. It's living a life of devotion and adoration and intentional worship in every area of our lives throughout the week. And as we do that, it focuses us regularly on Jesus. And the challenge that faced these Pharisees is that they were losing control and they see this scene going on and they think that it's hopeless. In fact, John records that they said these words. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. In that moment, the crowds openly proclaimed that Jesus was their king and not Caesar. In that moment, the tension is mounting And the challenge that Jesus now faces is, is he going to walk away and still live a nice long life? Or is he going to receive this worship? Is he going to receive these praises from this crowd? And as he does that, the gauntlet is laid down because Rome will not have more than one Caesar. They will not have more than one king. And Jesus is now either going to overthrow Rome or he's going to die. And we have the perspective of seeing exactly what happened that Jesus went to that cross willingly for you and for me. But in this story, and you see what happens here with these people, it continues in verse 41, and it turns a corner, one that we would not expect it to turn. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. It said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you, heartbreaking words, did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus, in these verses, when you and I would have, I'm sure, had a different reaction. Imagine yourself. You're the homecoming king. 
you're the homecoming queen and you're riding in and you're on your you're in your car and everybody you're in the parade and everybody's celebrating and shouting and how great you are and your pride and your arrogance and your belief you're believing your own press and you're starting to feel pretty puffed up and pretty arrogant and pretty prideful and in that moment when Jesus who was actually worthy of the worship he was actually worthy of being called the king of kings and the lord of lords in that moment he weeps because he sees what's going to happen he knows that this crowd is full of fans but they are not followers they are fair-weather fans. And on this day when they celebrate him, several days later, they will call for his execution. And in this moment, as Jesus weeps over them, he uses language that the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel had used. And in this story, he is actually telling the future. Remember, he always sees further and he always knows more. And in this moment, he's prophesying what's going to happen over 30 years later on, in A.D. 70, when the emperor of Rome would send the general Titus with the Roman legions to Jerusalem, and they would encircle Jerusalem. And because it was up so high, it took them from April until September to build the embankments. Jesus calls it crystal clear exactly like it happened. And the Romans starved the thousands of Jewish inhabitants that year. And by September... They took every aspect, every um, part of the Jerusalem city, and they smashed it, they crushed it, they killed tens of thousands of Jews inside, and the few that they left alive, they took off into slavery, into the Roman circuses, and into the gladiatorial bouts. And in this time, Jesus weeps over that when he should have been able to rejoice, when he should have been able to celebrate. In that moment, Jesus reminds us and I'm reminded as I look at it that he always cares. He always genuinely cares. You know, he actually cares about you. He actually cares about your family. He actually cares about your loved ones even more than you do. And he cares for the people that are the most difficult for you to love. The ones that you're constantly relationally strained in your workplace, in the school, on the campus, in your home. The ones that are hardest and most difficult. You might even call them your enemies at times. He loves them. And he loves the people who have yet to hear of his good news. Of his life, death, and resurrection. He cares about not just our area here in western Pennsylvania. He cares about the entire country, and he cares about this entire world and all who have yet to hear the great, awesome news of his grace and his mercy. And in these moments when it's hardest for us, when we have circumstances and difficulties and diagnoses and things that we're uncertain about and we're full of doubt and worry and uncertainty. Jesus sees further and he understands our situation and he always genuinely cares for us. And he demonstrated that care in the upper room just a few days later when he's with his disciples on Thursday night and he helps them to understand the magnitude and the extent of his love as he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. And he says, you know what? I'm doing this as a way for you to do it for others. And I want you to follow in my steps. And I'm showing you my care and my concern now. And the whole world will know that you belong to me by your love. 
That's how they'll understand. Not by your church attendance, not by doing a list of do's and don'ts, but by your love for one another. He demonstrated his focus and his care as he went to the garden. And Peter slashed one of the high priest's guards as they came to arrest him. And Jesus heals that man's ear. And he, he shows his care when he goes to the Roman whipping post. And he takes every blow and every scourge on your, on your behalf and on mine. He shows us again that he cares. He cares and shows it and demonstrates it by showing his hands and his feet giving them willingly for you and me on that cross. That on this day, he weeps for them. And on the way to the cross, he says, don't weep for me. Hard times are coming. And in that moment on the cross, suspended, he shows us his care. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he shows us his care by dying in my place, dying in your place so that you might find him as your focal point and that you might focus for all of your lives on Jesus. So many things tempt us and distract us, distract us from doing that. What is it today that calls you to look elsewhere other than upon Jesus? Is it buying into the lie that your ability to see and interpret your circumstances is enough? Is it assuming that everything that you have is for your consumption? Is it settling for the, a mundane, boring, religious life? Is it placing your affection or your worship on others or stuff? Is it forgetting that you're deeply loved and cared for by your Creator, your Redeemer? You see, as I read this story, I'm so clearly reminded that Jesus always sees farther, and he knows more than I do. He always owns everything that I have. He always does the unexpected. He's always worthy of worship. He always genuinely cares, and because of that, the challenge is for us to always go after Jesus, to refuse to take our eyes and get unfocused on him, but to refocus and keep our focus upon him, to pay attention to what he's doing and respond. I want to challenge you to refuse to settle for anything less than wholehearted submission and devotion to being loved and cared for by Jesus, to respond with a life of worship, with a life of adoration that trusts Him in all things, and be completely dependent upon Him, because if you do those things, it will keep you focused on Him. Let's pray. I'm going to invite our worship team to come. Would you just bow your hearts with me and I want to pray for you. We're going to give you a chance to respond this morning to what you've heard. Some of you may do it in your seats. Others of you may come forward and find a place to pray. Still others of you might go to somebody on either side and you're here today and, and there's deep concern. There's uncertainty. There's fear. Others of you, you need to talk to Jesus about stewarding his stuff well, about managing what he's given, that you would not fall prey to the idea that every dime that you make is for your consumption. Others of us, we desperately need to see that Jesus knows better and understands us better even than we know ourselves, that we could be reminded that he actually does genuinely care for us. So Father, thank you for always surprising us 
Today, Lord, we recognize the time of your coming in our midst, in our lives. Lord, we don't want to miss it. You're here today by your Holy Spirit. You're here today calling us to yourselves and wanting us to find you and to follow you and to have a vital, active faith that drives us to full devotion and dependence upon you. Lord, you're always worthy of worship, so would you help us to remember that even during the hard times? We acknowledge that you do see further, that you know more than we do, and yet we base our decisions on our ability to see our circumstances and our ability to interpret them. So help us, Jesus, to trust you. Forgive us for not trusting you, taking matters into our own hands. Lord, we confess that you own everything we have. Thank you for inviting us to manage your stuff well. And Father, we are grateful that you are always genuinely caring about us because, Father, some of us, we desperately need a caring touch from you today. We desperately need a physical healing, an emotional healing, a relational restoration, a financial breakthrough. We come to you asking you for help in our time of need. Thank you for reminding us today that you care, that you're active in our world today. We invite you to do the supernatural. We commit and recommit to always going after you, Jesus. It's in your name, for your sake, and for your glory that we pray. Amen.